Hello! Hello, everybody! Welcome to the Lunarverse. I am Dr. Charles Liu, but please, by now, as you know, please call me Chuck. I am so happy to be here with you all again. It is a joy, as always, and I'm always so happy to be here with our co-host, Alan Liu. Hey, Alan, how's it going? Hi, it's going good. All right. Picked up any good furniture lately? Yeah, um, you, long-time viewers might notice that to my this side, there is a slightly different uh, shelf thing there. That is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm slightly farther to the side, and there is an extra shelf there. So oh, um, wonderful. there will be drawers in it eventually. <laughs> ah, IKEA enhancements. ikea yeah not sponsored (laughs) and as you could just hear our good friend is back it's wonderful to have you again dr jimmy negus hey yes it is official dr negus and it's a pleasure (laughs) to be back (laughs) well welcome jimmy and it's been such a long time but we have so many things to catch up on i cannot wait give me a a basic sense of what's been going on since that big phd thing followed by (laughs) (laughs) What you're doing now? (laughs) Oh, so much, so much. So my PhD focused on active galactic nuclei. So for six, six glorious years of my life, I was studying black holes and, you know, massive galaxies and the evolution of stars in the context of black holes. Um, But recently, I've pivoted to the field of solar physics. So I'm in a field where photons are not an issue. (laughs) (laughs) it's the brightest thing in the sky yeah (laughs) i wish i could be in that field holy moly (laughs) but wait photons are almost too bright right because we look at the sun without protection we go blind so yes yes and for the upcoming eclipse that's a, a particularly important note be careful use your eclipse glasses you don't want to stare at that thing yeah yeah oh we all cannot wait uh april 8th 2024 I know that generally speaking, and maybe in a future edit of this episode, we will be taking things out that are not necessarily time sensitive. But at this Mm -hmm. moment, for this particular episode, we really, really want to emphasize that it's coming up soon, this total solar eclipse, this one that's coming up from Texas all the way through the Midwest into New York State, Canada, and beyond. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. Yes. Get your reservations. <laughs> there was an interesting bit to it, which is that um, it's going through Mazatlan, which if I recall, you saw a previous eclipse in Mazatlan. That's true. I had forgotten that. Yes, in July of 1991, uh, wow. my then fiance and I uh, went to Mazatlan, Mexico, got on a train with a bunch of other graduate students, uh, went down to Mexico, had a great time, we made sure that we drank only beer uh, and water that we had brought from the United States to protect our sensitive little tummies. And it was a lovely, lovely time in 91. Uh, but then, of course, uh, we did get sunburn, uh, which is ironic. <laughs> yeah. But that all happened after totality. Ah, I'm very excited for it. But awesome. um, let's, let's go right to today's joyfully cool cosmic thing. Uh, and Absolutely. this is truly cosmic. And Jimmy, I want your comment on this because I am not a specialist in this area. And perhaps you can shed light on this. Right. Apparently, just recently, uh, using the Meerkat Array, which is this big, beautiful radio telescope array in southern Africa, a team of scientists has found a pulsar, which is a 
rapidly spinning neutron star in a binary system with an object which seems to be somewhere between a neutron star and a black hole. We don't know what it is. Um, Jimmy, what the heck is the gap between neutron stars and black holes? And why is there one? And what is this object? Right. It is mind-boggling. So neutron stars, right? You have a star that has exhausted its fuel supply and has collapsed. And for certain stars, they can collapse into these dense objects known as neutron stars. But for this one, right, we have a neutron star, which is typically under two solar masses, Mm. Orbiting an mm. object that is predicted to be between two and three solar masses. Now you'd oh. say, well, it's a it's a larger mass. Is it not just a black hole? Yeah. Well, generally, black holes of this variety tend to be in excess of five solar masses. Oh, so we wow. have this unknown uh, this unknown object at the center of this orbit that is somewhere in between a neutron star and a black hole. And wow. what current, right? It's amazing. And what yeah. astronomers have currently found using this Meerkat telescope array, which is a radio, it's, it's essentially a conglomerate of over 60 radio telescopes. And so one theory is that the previous system contained two neutron stars that collided to merge to form Whoa. a single smaller black hole. And so oh, the leading theory is that, that this may just be a smaller mass black hole that we just haven't observed yet. Wow, wow. that's interesting. But it had to be created <laughs> in a way that most black holes don't get created. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's really cool. That's right. I, I know we've <laughs> seen the gravitational waves from some neutron star mergers recently, right? Right, right. So we, we know they happen. We, and we know they're out there. So like... I guess this must be what. Well, when the that. neutron stars emerge, though, we don't know if it's a black hole at the end of That's it. That's true. We? I mean, they, I it know. should right. be based on the basic physics, but right. we, we don't really know. That's really amazing. Right. There is some degree of uncertainty. Yeah. Oh, I'd say there's a massive degree of uncertainty. Shall we say. <laughs> um, but uh, I really want to thank our friends at the All Things Unexplained podcast mm-hmm. for bringing this news to our attention. Uh, the reason we're having this joyfully cool cosmic thing of the day is because they said, hey, what do you think? And I'm like, whoa, this is cool. You got to ask Jimmy. Uh, yeah. I'm very, very excited. I mean, do, you, awesome. do you think Absolutely. these are common? If, if, we, if we've just seen this for the very first time, is it just because right. like, our technology has improved that Meerkat is really great and then a future array like the square kilometer array right. or something will reveal even more of these? Or is this just one in a gazillion uh, and we just lost it? I think it is a matter of our technological capabilities catching up. And so right, okay. spatial and temporal resolution are always things that we're constantly improving. And there's a lot of space out there. So it's a matter of looking in the right places with the right technology. And I do think over time that, you know, what we see as one-offs will become more frequent once we're able to detect them. Oh, well, look, uh, this is a perfect time to break for a question. Alan, do we have a question from an audience member? Yeah. So our first question we have today comes from Michaela, who is asking, what are the chances of having black holes consume each other, becoming giant black holes, and it just slowly starts growing from there. That is an excellent question. And you know, gravitational waves have been one of the greatest tools that we have to deduce the frequency of black hole mergers in the universe. 
And, you know, I looked this up beforehand, and it turns out that across the entire universe, it's on the order of hundreds of thousands of black hole mergers. So it's, it's, it's crazy that we can even get a number. But if you were to look across the entire observable universe, we're on the order yeah. of about two to 400,000 black hole mergers. A year or like forever or since the beginning of the Big Bang? <laughs> <laughs> so the, <laughs> that is a great question. This is every year. Oh, okay. Wow. That's a ton. <laughs> yeah. Hundreds of thousands of black hole collisions a year. That's awesome. Well, right. So, okay. So now this is a really specialty on your part, Jimmy, because mm -hmm. I know that you were looking at active galactic nuclei for your dissertation, right. which means that you were looking at supermassive black holes, right? Not just your garden right. variety black holes that smack into each other. How right. often do supermassive black holes crash into each other? Is that Ooh. a common thing? <laughs> so that's going to be, right, that fraction is going to be much smaller on the order of maybe 10% of that is my estimate. You know, supermassive black holes are greater than a million solar masses. So these are really your vastly large cosmic entities. And so the wow. frequency of those is going to be a lot lower. Okay. All right. So I think we're safe that there's not going to be a big supermassive black hole, say, smacking the Sagittarius A-star supermassive black hole in our Milky Way anytime soon. We're okay with that. I think I think we're okay, at least for our lifetimes. Yeah, maybe when Andromeda hits. Oh, my goodness. Right, That's right. going to be something, because when Andromeda hits, it has a supermassive black hole. Yeah, We have a right. supermassive black hole. But that's four or five billion years down the yeah, road. Yeah, we, so we got a little while. <laughs> not, yeah, I'm not going to change my retirement plans. I think we're okay. Speaking of retirement plans, I, I think everyone who finishes a PhD thesis in astrophysics should probably just get the right to retire right away. But obviously, <laughs> we don't always have that luxury because you know our whole point of getting the PhD is so that we can go on and do cool new stuff. You had just mentioned, Jimmy, that you have shifted you, your adjustment to doing the sun. Tell us about this new cool stuff that you're doing. We'd love to hear about it. Absolutely. So I got my PhD from the University of Colorado Boulder, and I decided to stay on as a research faculty member. And so in my current position, I work with NOAA to help analyze data from the GOES satellite. And so the mm -hmm. GOES is the, ge right, it's the geostationary environmental uh, operational satellite. And it's the longest running continuous stream of satellites. Goes wow, now, now, cool. Now, hold on. Yes. NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. What, what are they doing doing sun stuff and astronomy stuff? That's a great question. And so the GOES satellite first launched in 1974 is a geosynchronous satellite. And so that means it orbits at about 36,000 kilometers. And its orbit is simultaneous with our rotation so it's geostationary and so it's primarily around once every day that's right and so it's primarily a weather satellite looking oh. down at the earth right looking at water vapor and clouds and you know temperature however there is also an x-ray sensor as well as a uv sensor pointing hmm. at the sun and oh, so that's fun. where the astronomer that's where hello hire me as an astronomer <laughs> oh, <laughs> nice. wow. and so so my job is to look at the sun that's so smart time. of those NOAA scientists to have said hey you know what <laughs> let's put something on the back of this satellite so we can look outward instead of just inward 
Right. And, so this and, is- and you might wonder why the sun. Well, space weather is also a huge mm. thing. Oh, wow. That's right. Uh, we have Solar Max coming up now, right? This year. That's um, right. That's now, right. What, what exactly is Solar Max and what is going to happen to us because the solar is Max? <laughs> <laughs> That's Go a great question. It. So let's take a step back. What is a solar cycle? Well, it turns out every 11 years or so, the magnetic field of the sun completely flips. And so during that process, there are magnetic um, intensities that correspond to solar maximums and solar minimums. And so this is traced by enhanced solar flare activity on the sun, as well as, you know, coronal loops and other prominences, other solar emission that can be ejected from the sun and can head towards Earth. <laughs> so, we're, we're, <laughs> right. And so we're approaching in 2025, a peak of a solar cycle. And so this is right. And so we want to understand how can the sun and its energetic emission impact our earth-based operations and health and safety. Oh man. I mean, I know that uh, there's uh, famous stories from solar maxes back in the 1800s, or there was one particular one supposedly during that telegraph wires were were flashing into flames and stuff like that and and right. uh, now we have like satellites and things that are vulnerable to that about a few years ago i mean the last solar max right there were at least one or two mm-hmm. uh, satellites that were destroyed or or had to right. be destroyed or just stopped working because they were hit <laughs> by all this solar stuff right that's not cool absolutely it's not cool at all and so flare, flares are tracked. They're, they're tracked by classes. So mm-hmm. the scale goes from A, B, C, M to X-class flares. Wow. X-class flares are the highest intensity flares. And yeah. these flares, right, they have the most potential to down power grids, to affect satellite communications, to potentially harm astronauts in space. And so we're, wow. when we see an X-class flare... Our eyebrows really go up. Yikes. Yeah, I got a little app on my phone that uh, lets me know when weird space weather stuff is happening. And uh, a few <laughs> weeks ago, there was like Tom, there was like an X five class flare, but it yeah. was like on the edge of the sun, so it didn't quite right. aim right toward us. But wow, that right. could have well, uh, been more exciting if it aimed right toward us. That was a huge well, flare. Well, does that mean that uh, I mean we're at risk? Um, I mean, what, what does, when you just, when you say risk, I mean, it sounds a little apocalyptic here. (laughs) So fortunately we've, we have, you know, over a century of data. And so a lot of this data has been ingested into models that can help predict when are these maximums going to happen? When are we going to get hit by the highest intensity solar emission? And so what we can do is we can power down certain satellites, right? Power down certain grids that we know could be particularly vulnerable. We can also create material that is more resistant to radiation as well in space. And so mm. we, we've developed a lot of creative solutions that ensure that, you know, if we get hit with an X-class flare, you know, our society doesn't stop moving. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> now, are we, are we smart enough to have used this technology <laughs> wisely? Okay. 
So, yes. So I will say, so a lot of the telecommunications, a lot of the local power networks, they do use hardened, you know, radiation um, uh, equipment, right? You can have, you know, lead insulated, you know, wiring, you can have protection so that you're not just exposed to, you know, whatever rains down from the sky. Okay. Okay. Thank goodness. That's good. Yeah. I feel like I feel like I know it's a little early for a second question, but the second question is very relevant to this topic. Um, go for it. Go for that earlier. Oh, do usual. it. Do it. Let's do it. All right. Yeah. This is this is a question from Shana who is asking, can a okay. solar flare set my phone on fire? <laughs> oh, what a you question. Have, <laughs> that is an amazing question. It's a good question, right? You have this dense ball of plasma that's spitting out energetic particles that can travel 93 million miles that is right it's a fair question yeah the 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 beauty though is we have beautiful you know um van allen belts that help shield a lot of our planet from harmful emission from the sun and so these are magnetic field lines that deflect a lot of solar emission and so if you were you know out in space you know, on a journey towards the sun with your phone, you'd be in danger. But here on Earth, you're you're not at risk for you know immediate implosion. The bigger okay. risk, the bigger risk is that a satellite will have its communication disrupted, and then your phone will have issues. You know, calling loved ones. Oh, okay. So that's right. just temporary. Fortunately, we don't have to worry about that's that. right. Unless the satellite <laughs> disappears, but then that's okay. We have nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine more of them. <laughs> At least, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so when the so the the thing from the eighteen hundreds you're talking about—that's the Carrington event—is that correct? Here, that's right. That's yeah. Right. So when that happened, like telegraph wires were like <laughs> doing crazy stuff. Is that just because they're so much bigger than your cell phone that they can actually like? get affected more so telegraph wires so so i should note that this to date was the most intense geomagnetic storm ever and yeah. it occurred during what's called solar cycle 10 um and so we we simply have not had an analog that intense so well, that is good. a huge role right but also you consider you know over a century is over a century and a half has passed and, you yeah. know, a lot of engineering has improved um, okay. fundamentally to, to address it. Okay. So so if we right. had, we're using 1800s technology today, <laughs> then we'd be in danger from that kind of thing. But since we have all That's these true. other things, like, like people know that this is a problem and have designed around it, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Right. We would be far more susceptible. Wow. Okay. So yeah. all that catastrophe aside... Your standard everyday GOES satellite studies of the sun with those nice sunward pointing x-ray detectors and stuff. What are you doing? What's the study there? Right. And I should first note, so back when I was studying galaxies and AGN, one or two photons, x-ray photons from a distant galaxy was a good day. Yeah. Now I, I'm flood, yeah. and now I'm flooded with them, which is which is wonderful for for awesome. data analysis. Uh, and so one of the big roles that I have is to calibrate and validate the data. Are the flares? Are the is the is the X-ray irradiance or intensity of that solar emission appropriately scaled? And one thing to consider, right? I mentioned GOES is a suite of satellites. It's not a single satellite. Right. And so a key, a key objective is how well do our satellites 
correspond with each other? Are they consistently reporting the sun's intensity? And how do they compare with other unaffiliated satellites? Ah. By unaffiliated, (laughs) you mean like from other nations or or other systems? No, just uh, let's say we have a a different NASA satellite. So here in Colorado, uh, our last, the Laboratory of Atmospheric uh, and Space Physics, um, Mm -hmm. they have a satellite, the um, Solar Dynamics Observatory. Right. And so that's an independent satellite also looking at the sun. And we want to confirm, do our measurements align with this other instrument? You know, the public really, they just care about, you know, is this actually an X-class flare? And our job is to ensure we are reporting those flares accurately. I see. Uh, It's kind of like many different weather forecasters so that you know that the hurricane actually is coming this way, as opposed to just someone <laughs> saying, oh, yeah. no, no, it's not. Yeah, or just yeah. one person says, okay. It's like the spaghetti so, tracks when you see those, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I see. Well, very nice. And, and one final point I also want to emphasize, it's not just, so there's the scientific interest in you know studying the sun. There's a public interest for you know safety and communication. There's also yeah. a defense interest, right? If you have Ooh. a huge, you know, eruption you know and you have energetic particles streaming down you want to ensure it's a celestial source and so there's also there's also interest you know in all sectors of society yeah because didn't the various militaries and like way back in like the early 60s like try and test nuclear weapons in space (laughs) yes i i well i'm sure i don't know those exact reports but it would not I would not. I'm gonna. I'm gonna look that up real quick if that's okay. Because I'm. Pr- yeah, I remember sure. hearing something about yeah. that. Yeah, and right. and you know that really makes sense. Mm-hmm. The original purpose of the Arecibo Telescope, that big, beautiful uh, single dish in Puerto Rico, uh, was indeed right. to measure the ionosphere for huge amounts of particles which might have been caused by air bursting nuclear weapons. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, so. These days, yeah. we don't do that, but instead we're still testing and making sure. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. This burst was not cu- uh, right. This burst was not caused by a human being. <laughs> right. It's very yeah. important to separate the two. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, so both the U.S. and the Soviet Union did, in fact, try and, right. and test really high up nuclear weapons. Um, and right. then the t- partial test ban treaty was like, we're going to put a stop to that because it's probably <laughs> bad for all the satellites. Oh, yeah, I think. Yeah, <laughs> that's terrible. Wow. Well, yeah, that's very right. cool. Well, thank you for that work, Jimmy. We course, appreciate the whole Earth connection and the space connection. You yeah. know, all, all of this talking about solar storms and, and electromagnetic pulses and things like that makes me think of one of our favorite conversation points, Jimmy, and that is bad science fiction. <laughs> or, 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 shall we say, creative science fiction with yes. very little basis in fact. That might yes. be a better way to put it. Uh, yeah, you know, I of course uh, have a hard time sometimes with that, but I know that you really do enjoy checking things out and seeing what people are doing. And and you know, sometimes it's not that important in a piece right. of fiction if the science is correct. It was what right. that fiction kind of leads us to think about, right? Yeah, I mean, that's it. it. Is it reasonable, for example, that uh, mining colonies far out in the solar system would actually hurl asteroids toward Earth itself? You know, I, I don't know how reasonable right. that is. But, you know, that brings up interesting ideas. 
Absolutely. So for those of us, yes, yeah, so those of us, uh, those of you who are listening who have no idea what I'm talking obliquely about, I'm talking about the expanse. Um, which we talked about <laughs> I just finished. Last time. I finished. You finished all it. Six, finally, yes. Wow. Oh, that's and, cool. Yes. And what do you think? What What is your What is your final conclusion? I so I enjoyed it. I enjoyed. I enjoyed the reality that the expanse put me in, <laughs> you know, the, the evolution of, of the alien life form called the proto molecule, um, mm -hmm. the attention to character development. It certainly, it wasn't a perfect show. Okay. It wasn't deep space nine, my favorite, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, nice. but, but, but like you said, you know, it doesn't need to be perfect if it serves as a catalyst for the imagination and to think about, you know, where could our civilization go? And, and to really, you know, put a fire under that um, creativity, you know, what's possible yeah. for our spacefaring civilization. <laughs> yeah, that's always the coolest part of sci-fi. Yeah, right. it's the things that come out from it, right? And, and I just love that you referred to Deep Space Nine again. Always have to shout out the vehicle always. from which the Grand Negus was introduced. Uh, <laughs> now, are you feeling a little bit like Rom? The one who became <laughs> the Grand Negus at the very end, or Grand Negus, I should say. Yeah, well, Grand you know, Negus. And, and, right. and also who got the Dabo girl. I mean, that's as good as it right. gets, right? Um, I mean, but, you tell me a better story. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, Dr. Jimmy the Grand Negus. Uh, Negus yes. being there in charge. I, I think it's marvelous. Yeah, no, it's a great story. There's no question about it. Although... We can argue whether Voyager was, in fact, a better story. Uh, certainly, Deep Space Nine had its moments, and, and it was well Absolutely. done in many, many ways. I, I like that show very much. How, how about the Absolutely. current crop of uh, the Star <laughs> Trek stuff? Do you have any comment on yeah. that? I don't want to put you in, in uh, any kind of awkward position. but <laughs> I, So I, I, I will reserve my judgment for now and stick with the classics. <laughs> okay. A safe, a yeah. safe decision. No question yes. about it. But, That's uh, right. That's right. Uh, yeah. Well, our time has gone by so fast. I wish we could keep talking. We'll have to get you back yet again, Jimmy. I'm sure. I'm always happy. Love to do that. Oh, that's fantastic. But okay, so where can we reach you now? Are you still reachable in the same ways? Social media, uh, any website information, things like that. So JimmyNegus.com, uh, and then just um, spacebound underscore Negus on Instagram. Spacebound awesome. underscore Negus. I love that. That's right. Oh, that's great, Jimmy Negus. Dr. Jimmy Negus, the grand <laughs> Dr. Jimmy Negus. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. What a pleasure to chat Wonderful, wonderful being on. Uh, Alan, as always, thank you so much for what you're doing. Super appreciate it. Yeah, you are welcome. Glad to be here. Okay. And for all of you in our audience, thank you so much, as always, for being part of what we're doing here. If you like what you see and hear, please support us on Patreon. And as always, thank you for being a part of the Luniverse.